I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com/suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. Hi, this is Lama Suryadas. Welcome. Welcome to my podcast. Awakening Now. And I've invited here today my friend, my old Dharma friend and buddy, Raghu, Raghavindra Das. Hi. Nice to be here. Nice Very to see nice. you. Yeah, on a nice cool day in, on the East Coast, right? Yes. The magic beautiful... of uh, technology that we can sit here together and have a chat. It's so great. A beautiful autumn day and... Um, I'm so, it's really nice to sit with you, Baba, because, well, for a hundred reasons, a thousand reasons, but just two days ago, I sat with Parvati, who just put out her book, Love Everyone. Yes, through, uh, through Ram Dass and uh, our foundation, Love, Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. You can go to ramdas.org. I'm going to get in a little, a little promo here. Go to ramdas.org and just right off the homepage, you'll find links where you can get linked up to get the book. It's just out this past week. And it's a wonderful book, telling stories. Um, us, Maharaji's Western Satsang community, beloved community, followers, telling stories about what it was like to be with him and how he transformed our lives. And uh, that's where we met, actually, Raghu, as I know you remember and you and Parvati was there and I was there and so many of our other beloveds and some of whom have podcasts including Krishna Das and so forth, on this very channel. This very network, MindPod network, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, we met in, uh, yeah, we met in Allahabad, India, in 1972. Yes. In the winter, and Surya came. And uh, it, there's a wonderful story, by the way, everybody, uh, Lama Surya Das's story in the book, is to me, there's a couple of stories for me that are really the essence of what Maharaji transferred to us. And, uh, and in particular, you got to get the book and, you know, read the story as he wrote it or as he, uh, as he told, told Parvati, it. yeah, as you told it. 
but basically the idea was he didn't first see Maharaji because he was just back in his room or whatever. Uh, but he was told just to meditate. I'm telling your story, but he was told just to, just to meditate in front of where Maharaji used to hang out, which he did and had a very, very deep experience of, shall we say, in a, the big way, the one, Maharaji as what he really represents beyond duality, beyond polarity, and just love space, whatever you want to call it. And then he was told to go, okay, now you're going to go meet Maharaji. And he goes in the little room, and there's the little Maharaji, <laughs> who seemed to be not that little, actually. And there he was, and, and it was striking. Uh, I mean, this wonderful personality and body that we all love so much. It was so playful, and we had so much fun with. And, uh, and there he was. And yet, ultimately, it was the big Maharaji, which is what we were all really all after and really all connected with, although we were quite young at the time and we're and many of us got quite attached to that to the little Maharaji, right? Well, it's the universal principle, whatever we call it. And it was amazing to me that and I this is the story I tell in the book which Ramda Raghu just um summed up that I actually my third meeting with Maharaji was that way in the heart in the immensity and the oneness before I met him in physical form in his room at Dada's house there in Allahabad, India. So that was really a great introduction. So heart opening and doubt, doubtlessly authenticated, you know, by my own experience. And then, of course, he was very playful and mysterious. And also I was 21 and a half or 22, no, 21 and a half years old. So I had no idea what was going on. And we had to speak to a translator and so on. So, I mean, I still barely know what's going on. But at that time, I had no idea what was going on. And it was very marvelous. That's all I say. It really took me out of my mind and into my heart and beyond, into the universal. And Maharaji was so universal. In fact, he turned me on to Jesus um, later in our Leela or our time together. Mm. And uh, I've been raised Jewish on my parents' side as Rambas used to say. So this was not nothing, but I realized the universal, you know, the Jesus heart of unconditional love and caring and seeing the divine, the light, the oneness, the beauty in everyone and everything. And Maharaji certainly embodied that. And it always amazed me, Raghu, and I know you too, how he treated everybody the same. Of course, he made distinctions based on who they were, but um, he treated us wandering seekers, vagabonds, hippies, whatever we were, young foreigners, mm. pretty much the same as he did the devotees who had been with him 30, 60, 80 years, and his parents and grandparents had also been his followers and devotees, the Indians. He was so much like Jesus, or like, let's say, the divine in that way, mm. treating everybody as like himself in the best sense. Well, actually, he, he used to, sometimes he would, he would say to us, w there would be Indians and there would be us Westerners all sitting around together, and he would say, you people, all you do is come to the Indians. All you do is come to me and wanting. You want your son to get a better job. You want your daughter to be married. You, you want your orchard to grow more apples. All worldly things. These people... I'm going to give them the keys to the universe. Mm. He's to tell mm. them you, but much is nothing. <laughs> so. Yes, he loved to he loved to call everybody badmash, which means mischievous or ra like little rascals, um, because we were little and immature compared to where he was coming from. But he did it with such love, just like we call our children, "You little naughty little rascal, come here and you know let me." Well, he let did. me punish let me punish you by asking you to memorize uh, two words by the end of the week, which is really helpful to you. It's no punishment at all. It's just a loving chastisement, but also reminding us to see things as he saw them and not to stay in our half-baked state of consciousness. Yeah. Well, it just reminds me, actually, of the deeper, as we were talking about you know, with you and how you saw the deeper reality uh, when you first encountered him outside of his body, meaning he was just in the other room. Uh, 
and um, that deeper reality. Uh, let's talk about the reflection. I think that that's uh, an important thing. You know, what happened to us uh, when we were there? And there was, t- I think, two things that happened uh, with uh, the idea of the reflection. The reflection of a pure mirror. One is, there was a reflection that reflected who our true natures were. And one is, there was a reflection that was so powerful that it brought up a lot of the guff, as you would <laughs> might say, uh, of mm-hmm. us. And that, of course, brought up all sorts of other uh, guilt and uh, anger and disturbing emotions. Talk about that in your own experience around that. And, and this is not just, by the way, and as many of you know, uh, and we've talked about it in our podcast, uh, Lama Surya has been with a number of uh, extraordinary beings. And uh, I'd like just to pick one right off the top would be the 16th Karmapa, who there's a wonderful book that Surya's stories uh, are in as well about uh, His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa. So not just Maharaji, but 16th, I think to me, they're, they're the, it's the same ship, <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Yeah, so talk about reflection, both true nature and guff. Well, the guru is said to be like a portal to the divine or a window or a door, and we need to go through that door and not get stuck in it and not collect the door frames either um, or be attached to the, those forms, but go through it to union or oneness or the ultimate. And the guru is also said to be like a mirror in which you see your own shit schmutz and kaka, like the crapola on your windscreen, on your windshield, becomes more clear. And it's like the uh, the stage mirror with the little light bulbs around it that actors use to put on makeup on their faces. And you can see every pore of your skin in that mirror. And Maharaji, or the, the guru's incandescent presence and cosmic awareness and all everything is just like that mirror that reflects so clearly that you see your own shit. And so that's very helpful for the ardent and sincere seeker who wants to see through and beyond self-deception and really go all the way on this journey of awakening now and enlightenment, oneness, union with the ultimate and so on. And Maharaji, therefore, he played all kinds of leelas or displays, sports, dance in Sanskrit leela divine dance, Maya Leela, the divine dance of illusion, with us and on us. So it was it was kind of like changing the frequency of the light so we could see. Sometimes we look in a mirror and see ourselves. Sometimes we look in his mirror and see who he really was, see the, see the divine or see him as Hanuman, the monkey-like embodiment of perfect selfless service and devotion. Um, he had so many different aspects. And the guff, the games he played were being difficult. Sometimes he would break our conceptions. Sometimes he would push us beyond the limits of what we would let ourselves go. I think I clicked on the website about the book and there was a story from Krishnadas about how Maharaji made him drive him somewhere and Maharaji getting in the car seemed to smash his head against the roof. Maybe it even bled. And Krishnadas was all out of sorts as the British would say. He was all freaked out, as we would say. And Maharaji was just cool as usual, just carry on. And and, and Dada said, don't worry. And he drove Maharaji to the place. And then Maharaji sat there for one moment in the car. They didn't even get out. And then he said, Tiga, let's go, drive back. Yeah. And Das went on the trip, not Maharaji. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that was Alila. So you could say Maharaji was difficult or put Krishna threw dust through his paces or made him go under the mill, you know, like running the gauntlet like the Native Americans used to make people do as an initiation, which is the point. Maharaji initiated us and he put us through his karmic car wash, Mm. all with the unconditional love that he was always there and loving for us. And he always returned to us, even if we didn't know exactly how to return to him. And we may feel far from him or the divine but it is never far from us. And that's what he told us. That's what he showed us, I think, in the magic mirror of mm. his divine heart, mind, his 
enlightened his enlightenment really his his saintly divinity he really showed us how god could be embodied to walk this earth not unlike jesus who i don't know most of us have never met in person but uh, seems to have been something like that and all of the saints and sages throughout all the ages so they do reflect to us who we truly are and can be and if we want it it's an invitation to become all that we are and can be mm. I got it. Uh, reminding me of that Krishna story, uh, it reminds me of a story that to even, all the way to today, I don't know what trip was run on me by <laughs> Maharaji. Okay, I'm in Allahabad. Actually, when we're uh, t t before, just before you came, and at some point, um, my father was there, right, mm -hmm. Das. And so it was time to take him back to Delhi. He was going to fly home. This is the first time he came to India. And so I said, okay, great. We take the trains like a two-day overnight or something. I'll be back, you know, two days late, three days late, whatever I said. He said, no, you won't be back. I said, what do you mean I won't be back? I, I always thinking <laughs> he was going to kick me out anyhow. Right. And he said, no, you're going to stop in Brindavan. You really like the sweet rubbery, which is a specialty sweet made in Brindavan. I, I said, was that true? Uh, he knew that you did? Or? Yeah, 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 that I like this sweet. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, but I was like, no, I want to get right back. Nope, you got to stop in Brindavan, have the rubbery, come back. Honest to God, me and Parvati and my brother, uh, Lakshman. So we went, dropped my father off in, uh, in Delhi. We went to Brindavan, right? Not, and, not close. Uh, no, well, not too train. far. Yeah, two yeah. and a half hours, right. uh, three hours, whatever it was. And all the way, all I was thinking was, okay, this is going to be fantastic, right? <laughs> There's some miraculous thing is going to happen here. And he's I'm gonna, sending you to meet God or yeah. he's going to be there or whatever. Yeah, right. No, he's going to bilocate, whatever. Yeah. I'm going to get in line. Whatever. Right. Something like that. I had yes, it all planned in my head about a million times over. <laughs> I get there, you know, we go to there. He had an ashram there. We went to visit that. I went to the market. I, took, I ate the sweets. We went back to the room and spent a whole day there. Not only did nothing happen, but it was the time of year with like nothing was going on in Brindavan. It was like winter, whatever. It was just absolutely dead. There wasn't a thing happening. Zero. I, I, do you know that I actually sat on a balcony uh, of the Jaipuria Bhavan where we would stay? And I actually, uh, a tears came to me because I was so like, what happened? Right. I don't Nothing know. Happened. Nothing. <laughs> I went back and I felt like saying, why did you do this to me? I, he didn't even, you know, of course, yeah. didn't bring up anything. And to this day, I have no idea why in the hell I went to bring so, so you didn't bring it up either? No. You didn't dare no. to bring it up where you were just, you know... No, you because just every had to time, accept it. yeah, every time things moved along. Listen, he had me go to. Uh, he told me to give my father acid in in Benares and then see him. That whole story on the houseboat. Yeah, and then next thing I know, you you expect coming back. Well, how was the trip, right? Anybody? <laughs> he's Nothing. the only thing he said was to my father, the Gunga water is very pure. <laughs> That's that was what it. he meant. Yeah. yeah, and that was it. So it was all enigmatic and so on. So I, to, to this day, have no idea. So yes, we 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 were run through a gauntlet. There was no doubt about it. You know, it, it seems like a gauntlet at the time, and it's initiation. It's supposed to be challenging, if not difficult, just like vision quests and other yeah. initiations. Um, it's also like a car wash and you go through and it's done to you if you just, you know, if you don't interfere too much. But somewhere in between, you have to do your part, like running through the gauntlet. You have to keep moving. You can't just fall down and give up. And then the car wash, you can't put, sit with your foot on the brake. And then you come out on the other side and you're still, you know, it's not done. It's just another step. But um, the, the gurus have the, and the authentic gurus we're talking about, not just whoever assumes that role for whatever reason, the authentic gurus and saints and masters, spiritual masters, really have siddhis or what should we say, like in the Superman song, powers and abilities far beyond those <laughs> of mortal men and women, you know, can fly and faster than a speeding bullet because the speed of light, the speed of mind, the speed of spirit and prayer and blessing and devotion is so much, quote, quicker or instantaneous. I know whenever I think of him, he's right here. And even when I don't, he's right here. And, and um, I never 
you've probably heard me say this before, Raghu, even on podcasts right here. I never sing without him being right in front mm. of me. And I'm not talking about visualizing him. It's just uh, I learned to sing devotional hymns and songs, kirtan, in front of him mm. and uh, in India and so on. And it kind of opened my heart and opened my throat chakra and opened my third eye sort of. And, and, and it's just right there. And mm. uh, what a blessing. Yeah. He's always with me. He's always with us. He's, he, he's always with those who are with him. And even those who may be against him, whatever that might mean, he's with them too in spirit. Um, just like God loves the sinner as well as the saint, no issue. And I, again, talking about the mirror and what we can get out of it or understand about that, Raghu, I feel like that reflection of our capacity to love all equally, even though we can st still have likes and dislikes and discern the difference between the criminal or the altruist, and act accordingly is very, very helpful. And we usually don't get that in our very complex and multi-color and multi-shaded world. He's so reliable, oh, like a, tr a truing mechanism, like mm. a true serum, a truing mechanism, an inner gyroscope. When we look in the mirror of the guru's face or our guru devotion, seeing through our small self and experiencing our, the totality, the oneness, seeing through the illusion of separation, where there's no difference between God and the guru and one's spirit or soul, our true nature. Hmm. Um, interestingly, since we're talking about how uh, suffering would come up and we would be um, going through, as we're calling it, uh, the gauntlet, uh, in, I'm going to bring up your, your latest book here. I don't know. People must Good. know about Make Me One With Everything, Lama's book from a number of months ago. Uh, there's something in it that I really that really uh, rings out related to what we're talking about, how uh, related to suffering. Um, and you talk about uh, growing through adversity. And you talk about, I don't mean just blasting through like a torpedo. We have to integrate it, hear its message, learn the lessons, grok it, assimilate it. We can't just go around suffering and avoid it. We can't just sweep it under the rug or make a spiritual bypass when our values challenge our ego. Um, and I think that, uh, and we've talked a lot about suffering. I mean, Ramdas says it over and over I love suffering it brings me closer to God which Maharaji came from Maharaji and and we we all have that I think we understand that that is the gauntlet that absolutely does uh, if if we have the right intention it moves to help us and transform us and um, get us beyond pleasure and pain and all, all of the polarizations right. in life. But I think we have such a tendency towards this uh, spiritual bypass. I think that would be a good thing for you to talk a little bit about, spiritual bypass, what we do and how we do it and what that means. It's a term that's come up that I've uh, borrowed from others, probably from the 60s and 70s teachers, about how we can use some things to go around like, the American army in World War II heading for Japan bypassed some of the smaller islands um, and had to go back and clean them up later. We, my, uh, the ego in us, the ego side of us often uses even spiritual practices and things to avoid our human or nitty gritty physical, emotional, relational, financial, uh, political, environmental issues. Mm. Like, and then we become like an ostrich sticking our head in the sand and calling it, you know, a meditation or hermit or renunciation, which it's not. So the middle way of moderation and balance try, tries to uh, not fall into those kind of extremes, like nihilism on one hand or materialism. So I myself found after being in Asia for decades and a monk for nine years and three-year retreats and things like that, that I had to clean up some things in my physical and emotional and relational and financial affairs when I got back 
in my early 40s and started teaching and organizing med Dzogchen retreats in this country and things like that and bringing my Tibetan teachers here and teaching with them that I still, um, I hadn't addressed some of my <clears throat> issues from my upbringing and clan of origin and family background and so on and um, wasn't totally integrated. So I think a lot of us, uh, the ego falls into that kind of thing. It's convenient to preserve its domain by helping us to deceive ourselves, like um, stuffing our feelings So, in the name of equanimity and spiritual detachment, when in fact we do have anger or other things in us, but we suppress them. So um, we might do, try to do an end run or a spiritual bypass around our intense emotions, but that's not the healthiest or most direct path to wholly integrating them and grokking and assimilating what they are, the light and dark sides of our psyche and really being one with and loving and accepting ourselves fully as we are. That is so much part of enlightenment and awakening now. A lot of, a lot of, um, has been written and, and, and spoken about this, but it's an important issue. And, um, Sometimes we see this in uh, unbalanced approaches to life, but I'm, you know, I work the spiritual side of the streets. I'm going to talk about that. Unbalanced approaches to spiritual practice or to, uh, diet, you know, lifestyle regimens like diet or relationship or um, extreme introverts using silent retreats to, ha to hide from the need to, to relate to people or um, countercultural dropouts using the name of simplicity renunciation to not participate in society and hide in the mountains and live on food stamps or welfare uh, when they can well contribute. Um, you know, this kind of unbalanced extremism, uh, avoiding what the real issues are. I, I, I loved when I read in the poet Mira. I think it was Mira, but it might have been another female poet from India from the Bhakti days. Mirabai. Who said, yeah, it might have been Mirabai, but it might have been Lala, mm. a Sufi poet, who said, uh, I, walk, I walk in this life meeting her all along every inch of her beautiful, gorgeous, sinuous body. Mm. That's very tantric. Mm. Yeah. Embracing and one with everything. And this was a women's, women speaking, so this is so embodied. And so many of us get rarefied and just try to go up into our head or ascend into heaven. We'll get out of the body and out of right. the nitty-gritty. But the nitty-gritty is it's the mud. Without mud, no lotus. So the spiritual bypass often, the ego uses the spiritual bypass to end run around the mud that actually is the sustenance. Mm. Or, you know, we can find God in the ashes, not just on the mountaintops. And we need to because there's plenty of ashes and difficulties and loss and grief and adversity in life. I love Ramdas, but I don't particularly love suffering. I'm glad he could say that. He's a, he's a mature being and he suffered a lot with his stroke and other things. Um, I avoid suffering at all costs, but I'm avoiding it less because I see that pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, I'm just, these are Buddhist teachings, um, you know, pairs are very, very relative and temporary. And inner peace is so much deeper than a little bit, a moment of calm. And bliss and contentment and fulfillment is so much deeper and wider than a little bit of the pleasure, pain, vacillation. So that's helped me a lot to be more peaceful and harmonious and engage or dance with life all along her beautiful, sinuous body, including the valleys and the darks, as well as the lights and the highs. I've actually written a whole book about this, about the virtue of adversity and gaining through loss, called Letting Go of the Person You Used to Be. Spiritual Lessons Through Loss, Grief, and Transformation. And it's, there's so much loss in life. Everything's impermanent. Everything changes. Everyone dies and so on. Everything passes. But how we relate to it makes all the difference. And we really can grow through the pain, you know, childbirth is a painful process, but joyous and, and, and gorgeous and worth it in the end. So if we look at it from the point of view of like theism or God's will or Maharaji's Leela, we, we learn to surrender 
and say, not my will, not my little ego, not my little mind that thinks I know how it should be, but thine, not my will, but thine, O Lord. In Buddhism, which is non-theistic, we still have this way of understanding this about being one with our karma and things like that. In Tibetan Buddhism, through Guru Yoga, we say everything is the divine display of, of the Guru, of the Buddha, everything, including ourselves and our ups and downs. So the enlightened one is not just beyond karma or free of karma or purified their karma. And I'm quoting a Zen master now. The enlightened one is one with karma. There is no separation. And that's the primordial oneness even now. Would we could just align or surrender into it. Like the bubble is already in the sea. No need to pop to return to the sea. To There's a certain way that there's a perspective from which we see the path. We even, in the very, very beginning, we even have to have a perspective that there is a path, that there is a way to transform our suffering. There is a way to be happy. And uh, why don't you talk a little bit about once that perspective is, once you realize that there is a path and that there is a way, then how do we cultivate, how do we nurture a new perspective and what where is that where does that perspective sit within ourselves that's a really rich question it, it it's no secret that we live in a very uh, skeptical if not cynical a secular scientistic technocratic age so there is not as mu- perhaps as much pure belief or blind faith in God or in heaven or nirvana or even, you know, in enlightenment or in the possibility of spiritual transformation or a better world, the kind of utopian ideals that the religions and the utopian community founders all throughout the ages have put forth. But we ourselves, I think, hope springs eternal, as it says in the good book, like every uh, hope rises in joy and hope rises in the morning. And it's, it's, it's the morning every day and it's always the morning and love dawns every day for somebody anew. And, and this is a beautiful life and it's a miracle. And, you know, if we don't know there's a there there, we can be questioning and checking and shouting and, and shaking things up and see what's really there or what can't be broken, what is real. However we look at this, Raghu, what is real? Is there a there? There is there a way to what we seek? And I'm a big fan of questioning and inquiry and seeking. Self-inquiry, scientific inquiry, uh, inner and outer inquiry, relational inquiry, and so forth. Not just blind faith, but finding out for ourselves. And this is a, a very important part of the path. And there are practices, if there are people who have gone before that we can question, we can read about them, we can meet living ones. We were just talking about Ramdas, the great spiritual pioneer who did so much to introduce Eastern thought, yoga, meditation, and so on, save a service to the Western world over the last 50 years. There are living masters, um, and, and there's the wisdom of our, of our satsang, of our community. We can learn from each other, from our beautiful brethren and sistren along the way. And then we start to see a little more clearly and maybe our idea of what we seek or what we need changes, transforms, deepens. We can move from just raw animal desire, hormone-driven teenage desires to deeper desires, to aspiration, spiritual aspiration, and and even higher to realization and to um, fulfillment and contentment, not, not just complacency. And this is very important, and we start to realize the authentic experience for ourselves, and we no longer doubt that there's a there there, and it's even right here. And that's that's a path. That's the path. Uh, historians have said man is the seeking animal. I mean, I guess I hope that includes women. Um, <laughs> and we are. And we're all seeking at least to know what happens when we die or our loved ones die. And that's the beginning of all the world religions, really. And, and there's so much more to it. What is real? What is love? 
and where to find it and how to share it together. So even just our ideas of what we're seeking, what we need will transform if we are a truth seeker and we're honest with ourselves and with each other and also realize, I think, that none of us can do this alone. And together we, comrades, beloveds, sojourners, on this great way of awakening and not postponing it, not waiting for after we die, but awakening now and awakening together and really looking into what this really means of finding out for ourselves through inner practices, contemplative practices, prayer, yoga, meditation, uh, chanting, sacred music and arts, through outer practices like good works and service and generosity and volunteering. And this is an election year, I mean, a local election year and a national election here in this country. Uh, it's a good time to be an informed citizen and participate and not vote against our own interests by settling just for a few captions in the news or a few words from whoever's holding the microphone, but really inquiring what's real and what's important and what do we think is important for the world we live in, and not just for us, but for our children, not just for the next four years, like the environmental crisis, for example. And think about that. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that that's what I call a path. It's a, it's a sacred journey, but our feet are on it right now. It's not far away. In that light, I think it'd be good to talk about uh, intention. And let me, uh, and I'm going to move it a little bit, a little bit uh, away from what we just talked, what you just talked about. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I'll give it a little bit of context. We're doing a retreat this December. Um, everybody, it's going to be online, by the way, Ramdas Krishnadas Sharon Salzburg. Uh, you can go to ramdas.org and sign up to get that. It's all free. Love everyone. So we're going to tell stories from the book. We're going to talk about love. And, uh, and I was going through some past material to sort of put together to give people an idea of what we're going to be doing. And we're talking about unconditional love. And at one point, Ramdas said in some talk, I try to love everyone unconditionally. Something like that. I just look out. You know how he is. I just look out my window. I see the birds. I love the birds. I love the tree. I love the person bringing me a cup of tea. And that's my practice. Krishnadas <laughs> came. We found something from him. Some, Dave, our friend Dave put this together. And Krishnadas said, There is no way on the earth that you can give unconditional love. There is no giving <laughs> in unconditional There's no receiving. There is being. There is... So, a little bit... Of, you hear the, the juxtaposition yeah. of, of the thing? Right. And I like to think that... I like to think, and go along with Ramdas, that having an intention to even enter into that space, and we talked about perspective just now, uh, I think is is truly important. Yet on another level, Krishnas is, is of course completely right. <laughs> so can, everybody's right yeah. because we love them unconditionally, and everybody has a piece of the puzzle, hmm. and it's not one thing or the other. So let me give you the final word, you know, which is which is my version. <laughs> you know, the, the world is full of one ways, so I can't yeah, take right, my right. one way seriously, but my way is the only way. Yeah, well, for I know me, the, for me, the church around the corner from me right here is going, our God reigns. I'm going, yeah. ours? What about ours? There's only one ours. Yeah. Um, my way is definitely the best way and the only way but, uh, for sure. me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the Dalai Lama will always say, quoting Mahayana Buddhism, everything depends on intention and motivation. The exact quote is, everything rests on the tip of motivation from the Buddhist scriptures. And what we're thinking about in this light is that karma depends more on intention and motivation than on action. Like a surgeon, you know, the act of plunging a knife into somebody's chest and 
killing them may or may not be a bad karma. It might be saving their life if you're a heart surgeon. Therefore, it's a very skilled, dedicated action, good karma. Or it might be murdering somebody if you're a mugger in the in midnight in a dark alley. So the intention is so important in terms of the outcome, karmically speaking, and the state of consciousness, the way of being of the character who is acting. Now, of course, we all know the cliche, the way to hell is paved with good intentions. So it's not either or. Intention is not the whole of the karmic results. And action is not the whole. It's a combination of intention and action and follow through. And also you might do something, but it doesn't succeed. You might try to hurt somebody and you don't succeed at hurting them. So it's not a completely bad karma. You might try to do something very positive, but you're not good at it. So it's not, you know, completely good karma. So, but intention is so important. Also, intention and motivation is something we have a lot we can mobilize around, we can manage, we can develop and master. We can develop our character and master it and purify our intentions and motivations to be less selfish, more empathic and compassionate and kind. We can train ourselves, we can pray and, and follow through in those ways. Uh, it's a little harder to control the outer results, the circumstances and conditions, not to mention other people or the weather or the, the tsunamis or, and so on. So I think this is a realm that we very much can um, participate in, the inner realm of intention and motivation that so much defines our character and our relations and our destiny. That's why, you know, one small act doesn't necessarily make a habit, but an intention or a motivation leads to action and repeated action leads to a pattern and hardens into character and habit. And that is what develops the karma or destiny. Mm. So yeah. motivation is so important. And intention is, I mean, you know, I, I'm not much of a pop psychologist, but I hear people saying, and I can hear like Wayne Dyer haunting me from one of the panels that we run. Intention is the most powerful force in the world. I mean, that's fine. Uh, we could also say love is the most important force in the world. But, you know, intention is a very powerful force. I can hear Rhonda Byrne, the author of the best-selling Secret, the Secret, talking about the power of affirmation and positive intention. As you think, so you become. This is a quote from Buddha, but it's also as you think and do and understand and proceed and continue and repeat, so you become not just affirming, I am rich, I am rich, I'm going to win the lottery, I'm going to win the lottery. You might have to do something to win it, like at least buy some tickets. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the power of positive thinking only goes so far. Scientists, since we live in a very scientific, you know, age, have researched and shown that the placebo effect is 30 or 40 percent as effective as like mood enhancing drugs. I'm not talking about illegal drugs as antidepressants and some other things. And so therefore prayer or the power of intention must at least be as powerful as the placebo effect. Mm. So the intention is very powerful force and I'm all for it. Therefore, we try to hone our attention intention and attention and understand what we're doing and why and look into the motivation not just into the action and our own motivations if we're doing something kind for nice or donating why are we doing it are we doing it to get ego strokes or our name on the plaque on the wall of the building was it really royal giving dana paramita selfless giving caritas christian love self-giving is it really giving without expectation of return the way in the best cases we parent the teenagers even though we may feel how ungrateful they are for quite a while during those teen years we still love them because do we have a choice no so intention giving without expression of return yeah that's our intention and yeah. leading to unconditional love which admittedly is a huge and divine ideal not unreachable but it's very very saintly ideal well i think Intention with motivation is a nice balance there, and and uh, that sort of helps to take away the uh, inclination to the pop psychology side of self help mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. Uh, 
I, I think that uh, when you include motivation, it makes a, a huge difference. And in Ramdas's case here, uh, I think we all can agree that his motivation uh, in terms of selfless service has been there forever and remains mm-hmm. so now. And so when I think when he says that he that's what he is uh, actively practicing it's coming from a really pure intention a pure motivation rather yes and uh i i think it goes back to what you were talking about it really all it all is about where this is coming from inside anybody even sitting on their cushion and practicing meditation for 10 minutes it really so motivation is really a clear clear factor here um Yes, it has a force. If you're doing a spiritual end run to try to avoid the chores or to suppress your feelings, it's not sitting on the cushion for 10 minutes is not that impressive of a good karma. Of course, if you're totally in the moment for 10 minutes, just sitting, just breathing, just being, that's an awesome positive karma that has, I, I find, I believe, incredible karmic outflows. Very powerful. It's a quantum leap. It's not just a little ego strategy to avoid uh, uh, unpleasant feelings. It's really an attunement to the primal oneness and harmony of beings and all things. It's a way of loving all beings without talking about love or even a lot of emotionality. Mm. It's a very pure uh, emotion. Yeah. Uh, going back to something I made a place mark in in your book make me one with everything um and it was around uh, deathbed meditation and mm-hmm. there's a lovely story in there and you mentioned this to me the other day and i hadn't really remembered it in the book about doing a skype session with a good friend who you hadn't seen in a long time um why don't you tell that st- i think it's a beautiful story maybe tell that story a little bit and and talk about uh, what uh, this all comes to mind because uh, my friend David uh, last night a good friend of his died suddenly. I'm not sure if it was suddenly or what, but uh, and so he was you know he's been going through some some suffering and uh, obviously trying to say what it is that he can to assuage all of the friends that mm-hmm. uh, that have have this loss and this grief and so on and. Uh, so, yeah, maybe you can talk about your experience directly with this individual, which, who's a friend of a friend of our, you know, someone in our satsang, and, and then talk about what it is. I mean, we so much get into platitudes, you know, and there's been a lot of, a lot of death in the news lately because of yes. the terrorism and so on. So I think it's a, it's a good subject. Go ahead. Well, death is always with us. Death is a part of life, and we can't deny or avoid it as much as we might like to. But life and death come together. So we're all going to die, Raghu, but who's going to truly live? I mean, I think that's the question we're seeking answers to in many different ways. What is authentic life or the, the good life, the divine life, even the best life for us and our loved ones and generations to come? Um, being a, a Buddhist Lama in the Tibetan tradition and lineage, a lot of people ask me to perform services or a ritual or pray for them when they die or perform po-op, consciousness transference practice, or, or just be with them and sit with them. So I've done a, a good deal of that, uh, and that's been very, very rewarding. Um, I probably have said this to you before. I feel like whenever I'm even just talking to somebody on the phone, if it's their last conversation or just the day before they die, it's the most meaningful thing that I've done the whole month, even though I may be leading a 10-day intensive meditation retreat or being with the Dalai Lama at a conference together, or even that I'm moderating, we're close together. Just the, the, the vitalness, the profundity, the universality of it, it's just so... Uh, poignant and meaning and profound and enlightening. So specifically, um, our old friend Vivekananda, our satsang friend, Evangelos Dropadi's friend from Greece, his wife called me. She got my number somehow off the internet and I hadn't seen him in about 30 years since we traveled in India together in the 70s. 
and I had never met her. And she said, Vivekananda is on his deathbed from lung cancer in the hospital, or maybe it was the hospice of the hospital in Mykonos where they lived. They were Greek. And he wanted to know if um, I remembered him. And, and that made me cry pretty much because we had traveled together. I remember all of my beloveds and my satsang brothers, and we've been Maharaji and we're such good friends. We'd probably been in a 10-day uh, mindfulness course with Kawankaji and Indian things like that. Anyway, um, we shared a room, things like that. I said, of course I remember him. And she said, would you talk to him on the phone? He's having difficulty even talking and breathing, but he would so like it if you do something for him, pray for him, chant for him before he dies. So we immediately set up a Skype call. And uh, I I'm laughing now because you know how technology and I are not one. <laughs> Although I am one with all things, technology is an exception. But there may be others, I'm afraid. Anyway, it's just funny. So she held her, um, I think it was a laptop, but it might have been an iPad, up in front of him. And I saw him and he saw me on his deathbed lying there in a hospital or hospice with an uh, oxygen mask on because he was dying of lung cancer. And he couldn't talk. But... Um, we nodded and I talked and she talked and, and and then I started chanting and I chanted some of our ashram chants and I did some of the Buddhist and he started, you know, his head was nodding and tears came trickling out from under the oxygen mask and it was just so beautiful. What more do we need to say? We could be together in the last moments of his life with Maharaji in the spirit, one like when my father died, I was so glad I could be there alone with him. Not that we chanted together, but, you know, I could be there for him, with him, one. And it was just, and it was so wonderful and for his wife also, you know, so much of the services and funerals are for the living, not for the dead. And uh, it was just so beautiful and so meaningful. And then we, you know, chanted and kind of meditated and swayed and for about a half an hour, 45 minutes, and um, it was just so meaningful. And I really felt like we were together. And through the magic of Skype, the internet, great Indra's net overarching, it was just like when I say, whenever I, sit, I chant or sing, the Maharaj is right in front of me, and I'm not visualizing him, just like feeling him, seeing him, being in the presence not just in my own cocoon-like ego shell looking for things to satisfy me, just being in the presence, totally. So I, I'm starting to call that webitation and offer that to my disciples and followers and people who want that kind of thing because uh, we can be together even across distances and enter into that spirit together and realize that death is like a, just another dream. It's just another part of life. We didn't begin the moment we popped out of mommy's womb. We were there a month before, and we don't end when we breathe our last. As some people near death experiences or other insights, including the Tibetan talk about the bardo and the intermediate stage after death and rebirth, will attest. So I think that it's a very important subject. As Buddha said, as the elephant's footprint is the largest in the jungle, the reflection or remembrance of death and mortality is the greatest transforming meditation. So that doesn't mean we have to be morbid about it, but recognize everything's impermanent. We will die, but value life, cherish life in the precious miracle now of every day, of every breath, and all that lives, and not take life lightly, not kill, and also not take or squander our own life and time lightly. I think this is very important. So um, reflecting on death and being around death and dying in service work has helped me to value life and appreciate it, be more grateful and savor it much more and not procrastinate to put things off. And also to see how much death is part of life and life is part of death and death is like a dream. Death is just like a dream. It's life that we need to fully accept and live. Death is just part of life. We're, we're, we could do a lot more on the life side, I think, not just worry about death. 
I always encourage my students to meditate and contemplate these things as the Buddhist teachings often remind us about impermanence and so on, but also to walk in graveyards and cemeteries or cremation places. Uh, we saw this along the Ganges in India, the bodies being cremated. It was an incredible in reminder. Uh, it was like a direct insight being, being um, implanted into our minds and hearts. I, I can still see it. The smell of fat burning and the bodies being burnt like driftwood and realize I am driftwood. This body is driftwood. And yet, and yet there's something more here. What is it? That's my quest. What is it? The only thing I can relate with and in, in, in just thinking about everything that you're saying, uh, and I go back to uh, sitting with my father and uh, this book, of course, everybody make me one with everything. Surya, Lama Surya talks, talks, talks quite a bit about the interconnectivity of everything. And much of this book is based on that interconnectivity, including, he calls it intermeditation. And in that moment, that is what was happening. It was myself, another Dwarka, another satsang guy, and my father, who was dying in his last days. And he could not talk, and he could sort of just, through his eyes, connect. And, but we sat there in silence, and it was true intermeditation. I mean, I didn't have a word for it then. It's mm -hmm. a good word for it now. Yes. Uh, and what was there after everything was gone? After everything is gone, you're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about the attachments in your life. What's left is love. I mean, we were just sitting mm -hmm. in that love. And what was amazing to me, it was the same moment that I sat with Maharaji in that same space, especially... Uh, in those moments when I was not thinking about myself, I was not <laughs> going through the gauntlet of all the bullshit that I was seeing in myself through that pure mirror. And so um, that is, uh, that is to me, uh, when we talk about love and death, right, that is exactly what we're talking about. And uh, I can't think of it or see it or feel it in any other way. And I was, feel so fortunate that through my father, in that moment, I was able to experience it and connect it with being with Maharaji, which had no death. Mm. It was just complete, mm -hmm. the most alive I've ever felt. And this ended up the most alive I've ever felt. So that, that to me, is a, a, a great uh, boon that Maharaji gave me. So Wonderful. Yeah. Well... Oh, well, it's, that's why they say love is greater than death, you know. Yeah. Maharaji Nimkaroli Baba breathed his last, as far as we know, on the full moon in September in 1973. But for us, the guru never died. And um, your father breathed his last and my father breathed his last, but they're still with us. And um, it's a mystery. Mm -hmm. It's not far, but yeah. it's, it's a mystery. And it's love. It's Love is greater than death. The relationship continues. Yeah. This is not just an abstraction about love. The relationship continues. I know what my father thinks about this, what we're doing now. And just like, you know, if he was going to call me later, I know what he would, you know. <laughs> I, it's in us. Yeah. They are in us. And we are the cresting wave of evolution. And all the forebear, all the predecessors, all the lineage masters and our parents and et cetera, are all in us, living through us. And, and how we pass it on and pay it forward and pass the torch to the next generation. I mean, you have kids, you know how yeah. important this is. Yeah. It makes such a difference yeah. to, to the world and to our life, to everything we care about. Yeah. So I take this very seriously. And I hope that you, our beloved listeners and friends and you know comrades and beloved community also can take this seriously. Not too seriously. We have to lighten up also while enlightening up sincerely and seriously really think about love and where it is and what it is and big love not just egocentric love i'll love you if you love me me first and um, as ramdas said my mantra now is i am loving awareness yeah. i am loving awareness so not just being a drama queen or drama queen but with emotional love or lusty love but dra loving awareness i am loving awareness yeah it's and practice loving. Love is a verb. Yeah. We need to love. Especially love comes in these, through loving. 
in these times, especially in these times. Uh, especially in these violent and fractured times. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, this has been fabulous to, Thank you, uh, to be here with you. I mean, you know, this is crazy. We get a chance to just hang out like this and share, and and then hopefully uh, everybody out there that's uh, part of uh, the MindPod network and part of listening to Lama's podcasts and all of our podcasts on the MindPod network, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to share. And, and in that sharing, let this uh, grow interconnectedly with all of us. And uh, yeah, let, let this grow from your lips to Maharaji's ear, yeah, yeah. God's ear, yeah. ear, ear, here, 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 ear. Right uh, here. All right, love you and uh, everybody. Yeah. yeah, keep tuning in, and we'll s talk to you later. Loving you all. Thank you for listening to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the amazon.com link for all of your purchases. Namaste. Namaste.